I want to welcome you to the fourth part of our series called I Give Up. Come on, everybody. I enjoy this series. I enjoy the name of this series because I can apply it to so many parts of my life. All right, everybody. But we named it this way because we've been going through a few things that I believe here at the outset of the year, a few things that we can give up. That will set us up for God's best in 2021. Some things maybe that have rooted themselves in our lives. Some things we need to work back out of our lives. Amen, everybody. And so we've been going through those different avenues or those different items that I think we need to get rid of. That we need to give up. And you want to be here next week because we're kicking off another series called It's Not About You. So you can already guess how encouraging that's going to be. Uh, and so I'm just on a roll naming these things for 21. All right, everybody, I just, I got a roll. You'll see what's going to happen the rest of the year. But be there for next week. But today I want to finish out this series, this series I Give Up. Because week one we talked about how I give up making excuses. Now, as we entered the new year, we were going to leave behind all the excuses that we have. Because as soon as we decide to change, the devil comes along and gives us reasons to stay the same. As soon as we decide to make a change, so often, sometimes we ourselves give ourselves reasons to stay the same. And so we talked about we need to give up excuses. Week two, we talked about I give up complaining. Come on, somebody. That went went in over like a lead balloon for most of you. But we talked about how so often in our lives we complain about every single thing that happens and how it's God's purpose for us to never complain. How it's not like we're going to complain less in 21, but it's more that we will never complain. So hopefully you remember some of the principles from week two. And then last week we talked about I give up religion. How we talked about how so many of us, Christian or not, attempt to clean ourselves. How we attempt to wash ourselves clean of our sins. And how all the washing in the world will never achieve that. How it's only by the blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, that we can be washed clean. And so we talked about I give up religion. And so this week, I'm going to wrap up this series dealing with one of what I believe the most widespread pitfalls that we see both in the church and in our culture today. And I'm convinced that so much strife and sin comes along from this one issue. And we've talked about this a little bit uh, last year in a few of the message series. And we talked about it a little bit so far this year. But that is the idea of comparing. This idea or this sin of comparison And the reality is it's drawing all of us into a place that's unhealthy, not only for our lives, but the lives around us. And I'm convinced in our culture today that most of this is due to Instagram and and Facebook and all the rest of the social media. But that's not where it came from. In fact, you go back all the way to the beginning of human history where you begin to see in the first family this idea of comparison. In fact, the first murder that ever occurred was due to this idea of comparison, this sin. You remember Cain and Abel, they bring their offerings before God and God accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain's. And Cain, instead of deciding and trying to figure out his relationship with God, instead of figuring out where he went wrong, he murders his brother out of jealousy because of comparison. And we deal with some of the very same issues in our culture today. And it might be a variety of reasons that we compare, but we still do. Right. We compare our car against someone else's car. Isn't it true? Right. When you buy a new car or maybe two or three years old, you spring the money for the updated model and you are very proud of your car. Come on, somebody. You are proud of all of its features and all the things that it does. It talks to you. It drives. It does all the things that you love. And then a few weeks later, your neighbor pulls into the driveway with the 2022 model of your car. Come on, somebody. And you look over there. And they've got all the bells and whistles and it makes coffee for them. And it does all the incredible things that you would love. And you look at your car and now you hate your car. And you want to kick your car, but you can't turn it back in because you're upside down on the payments. Come on, somebody. 
And so you hate your car now. And so we compare our items, our possessions. We compare our houses. Isn't it true? Don't you ladies hate when you're going through Instagram and you see somebody who looks like Pinterest threw up all over their house? Come on. And you see that thing and you're looking at that and you look over. Some of you do that to me, by the way. Melissa's going through and she's like, did you see? Did you see what her husband built for her here? And I'm like, he's got, that's not real, all right? They just made that up. That's not, he's got a cabinet saw and knows how to use it, all right? So that's just an unfair advantage. So I just wanted to thank all of you for that. Like, I was like, we got to go to Hobby Lobby, honey, if you want that. Because it's just not humans can't make that. It's not real, all right? Or when you guys go to a friend's house and their TV looks like the person's about to tackle you in the middle of the game and you've got the tube television at home and it's like this big, right, but this wide and it just doesn't even, it's not right. It's just not right that they should have. And we compare our possessions. We compare our feelings inside. For some of us, it's our appearance, right? You ladies, you compare, right, your hair and your hair products and does it blow in the wind? Does it, does it really have volume or does it have length or what, whatever it is, right? If they put that big fan on you, would it blow in the wind? Guys, we're just comparing like if we have hair, right? We're just, it's like, is it, is it rooted? Is it receding? Is it staying right? Is it growing in the right places on my body? That's a big win for us. We compare how we look. We compare body sizes and shapes and muscles and how we look, right? If you've ever been a part of a sports team or ever been to the gym, everybody's like sizing each other up, like, sup, right? Like, what's, like, everybody's looking and they're not really looking. Everybody's looking in that big mirror. We're not really looking at each other, but they're all looking like to see when they're doing the bicep curls and who's attaching more weight to that machine. And we all compare ourselves. And of course, everybody's got their thing. One guy's like, well, I'm big. And another guy, well, I'm cut. And then everybody's got their different thing. But as we do it, it leads us into places of insecurity. And so often as we compare ourselves in every avenue of life, it leads us further and further in insecurity. We do it in situations and circumstances as life as well. Where we say, well, man, how are they so much further in their career than I am? I know they were dumber than me in school. How come they're making more money than I'm making now? Or I know I'm prettier than her. Why is she married and I'm single and I'm looking at We compare ourselves to others around us. And we compare our marriages. We compare our relationships. Some of you are looking around and saying, well, I wish my marriage was like that. Or I wish my friendship was like that. I wish my husband was like their husband because their husband has the cabinet saw. Come on, everybody. And he's the one that, right, is, they're, they're posting whipped up a little something on a Saturday afternoon. And it's like a rocking horse, right? And it's been stained. And it's beautiful. And you look over and your husband's got cheese puffs on his chest, asleep on the couch, watching football, right? He just, we compare our different situations, our different circumstances, our relationships. And it brings us to an unhealthy place, this toxic tone that ruins, honestly, our relationships. It ruins the different circumstances of life. It sneaks in and it leads us to an unhealthy place. And I'm praying by God's power in this new year that we will give up comparing. And we will give up comparison and that a couple of pitfalls that come along the way with them. I want to show you why it's so toxic from God's word. And then I want to give you a couple of simple ways that we can fix it before we leave today. All right, everybody. Very simple, like the rest of this message series, because I don't believe that the gospel is hard to understand. I think it's hard to do. I think it's hard to embrace sometimes. And so I'm just going to let you know a few things that you probably already know, uh, a few things that you probably already have inside of you. We're just going to encourage you to do them. All right, everybody. I don't think you need to learn something new. I think you need to be encouraged to do what you already know. Amen, everybody. So let's get started today. First one, jot it down if you're taking notes today. When we compare, the Bible tells us comparison is the death of intelligence. 
Comparison is the death of godly intelligence. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. We do not dare, and some of us dare, but he said we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. So a little time out here. In Paul's day, there were people running around who were trying to say how great they were and all the great things they were doing and how they were the real apostles and how they were the only keepers of the gospel and they were the only ones who really knew what Scripture meant. And so they were running around talking about all the great stuff that they had done. And they were writing to all the other churches and visiting them and saying, I started this church and I did this thing and I did all these things. And Paul just starts out just saying, look, I'm not going to get wrapped up in all that mess. We're not going to do those because watch this. It's the we're commending ourselves because when they measure themselves by themselves and they compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Another translation said they lack understanding. They lose all understanding. You catch that when they compare themselves to each other, when they try to outcompete one another in the things that they're doing, they've lost all wisdom. And when we compare ourselves, it's the death of godly wisdom because each one of us is on a different path. Each one of us is on a different journey at a different place in life, in different circumstances, with different giftings from God, with a different calling of God on our life. And so when we start to compare against others in different areas, it's the death of godly wisdom. In fact, it's the start of a whole host of problems that you'll see in just a moment that it brings into our lives when we try to compare our place in life, our calling in God to the people around us because it messes with the world around us. And the reason why is very simple because when you compare, only one of two outcomes occur. All right, everybody in life, only one of two outcomes occur. There are winners and there are losers. Come on. I know everybody in this culture gets a trophy, but that's not how life works. All right, everybody. That's just not how it works. Come on. I can feel some godly people in this house. That's not how life works. There are winners and there are losers. I'm going to beat that point to death until I go to see Jesus. All right. But we're not all winners. And when we compare in your mind, you either win or you lose. When you look at others around, when I compete and I compare, I either win or I lose. I'm either inferior or I'm superior. In your mind, when you compare, and they have very profound effects, different effects, but very profound when one of the two options happen. And before we get to what those are, you and I have to understand that there are two judgments reserved for Christians at the end of our life. The first one, most of you know about, and that is, that is your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, have you put your faith in Jesus? And that's heaven or hell. That's the decision there. But after that, the Bible talks about for Christians, there is another judgment reserved for them. And that is for the deeds that we have done in this life. The things that we have accomplished in this life that Jesus will judge us by. And so the Bible talks about this judgment seat that comes. But what we need to understand is that God is not going to judge you based on what anybody else has done, but based on what you have done with the potential that he gave you. God's not going to judge you based on what anybody else did in their life. What anybody else did with their potential will be judged based on the potential that God gave us. And so when we compare, we lose sight of the fact that God has placed something inside of us. And it's not wise for us to look at other people in different circumstances, in different ways of life, in different positions, with different giftings and abilities, and begin to compare. Because it's the death of intelligence. Now, when we compare, two things happen, I told you. First one, jot it down, take notes. Because when you compare and you feel superior, comparison leads to pride. Comparison gives birth to pride in our life. When we compare and I win, it gives birth to pride. It's really only one of two directions it can take. And it either makes us feel really good about ourselves 
are really bad. Watch this in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. Jesus is telling this story about a Pharisee. And it said, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, right? This is the religious folk of the day. This is the ultra, super religious, super squeaky clean Christian of the day. And he prays, God, right? You know, it wasn't a single syllable God when these guys prayed, all right? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even, and watch, he points to this guy, even like this tax collector. Like, I can't imagine how these guys even lived, right? How they didn't get their tail kicked, because you know this Pharisee wasn't in good shape, all right? He just, but he points at the tax collector, even like this guy over here. I fast every 21 days in January. Come on, somebody. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Religious pride. It's ridiculous. And I am convinced that none of us have ever said this out loud, but I am also convinced that all of us have thought it. All of us have thought this prayer in our lives, right? I'm thankful that I'm not like those other people. All of us have prayed a prayer. I'm thankful, Lord, you didn't make me like them. I know I got some issues, Lord, but you didn't make me like them. And so I'm thankful for that. And you might not be convinced that all of us have prayed. So let me just convince you this morning, all right? Before you had kids... Come on, somebody, you know where this is going already. All of us have been in Walmart and we have heard what sounded like a murder happening on aisle 13. Come on, we've all been there. We had, and so like all the other ambulance chasers in town, we run over to aisle 13 to see what all the screaming is about, only to find a child prostrate on the ground in the middle of the aisle, screaming bloody murder, right? While a poor parent looks embarrassed. And all of us then go, before we had children, <gasps> I can't believe that they have a child like that. I would never have a child that acts like that child because I am such a better person than that parent. To which all of us would then explain, then you have never had a three-year-old, all right? You have never, because we all know that three-year-olds just sometimes get possessed and there's nothing you can do about it, all right, everybody? There's just nothing you can do. And, but we, we, in that moment, I just, I would never. We don't pray these kinds of prayers, but we think these type of thoughts. God, I would never, and it's ridiculous, the things that we compare and the things that we feel like we are superior in, especially as Christians, the way that we get so prideful. And the Bible talks about this in so many passages about how we are so unaware of our own issues, that we're so ready to poke at other people and to point our finger and so unaware of the issues that we have in ourselves. I mean, you see it even in church. We leave church one day and you're out there getting in your car and you look over and somebody else is smoking, getting in their car. And you think, my goodness, they're smoking. They're filthy smoke. Don't they know their body is a temple of the Holy? They're filling it with that filthy smoke. And all the way to lunch, you're gossiping about that person. I just can't believe they would do that to their body. I can't believe they would do that to the temple. Of the, and you're gossiping all the way. And I just, you know, I think their marriage isn't as good as I thought it was. Because that's all that filthy smoking. And they're just doing all that. And you, I can't believe they would diminish the temple. And then you pull up. Yes, I'll take a Baconator with extra bacon and four large fries and a Diet Coke. Come on, praise Jesus. I'll just... Oh, that's filthy smoking. They're just, And we are blind to our own issue. Come on, somebody. I'm going to preach today, all right? It's going to be a good... What is it? What? It's ridiculous. It's religious arrogance just because somebody else sinned differently than we do. It's religious arrogance that somebody else struggles. At, and we think, we think, man, they just, I have issues, but they are sinful. I, the things I go, they, they are just issues that I'm working through. Praise the Lord. But they, they live in sin. 
It's religious arrogance and pride. And so when we compare and we win, it leads to pride in our heart. It leads to pride in the comparison. Come on, it's quiet because it hurts somebody. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Truth is, when we compare, it is the death of intelligence because so often it gives birth to pride. And the Bible talks about how God can't really do very much with a person who's full of pride. In fact, he opposes them. Because when we live in that place where we're evaluating ourselves against others, we're drawing our self-esteem from our comparison with others instead of our value from our God, so often it leads to pride in our heart. Where we draw our self-esteem from lowering others. Well, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. I'm not where I want to be, but thank God that I'm not that person. I'm not working out that issue, but just thank God that I'm not them. And we have all done that. Second and equally toxic response that we can have, and jot it down if you're taking notes, is when we lose, when we feel inferior, it gives birth to insecurity and jealousy. That comparison, when we win, gives birth to pride, but when we lose, suddenly we feel inferior, and insecurity and jealousy begin to root themselves in our heart. I love this story out of 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 6. It says, When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistines. So remember, David goes against Goliath, kills him with the five smooth stones, right? Great victory for Israel. You might have heard about it. And he kills Goliath, and now they're returning home from the victorious battle. So they're all getting off the plane with their suits from the championship, and all the cheerleaders are around, and everybody's dancing and singing, and the people come out to greet them at the airport. And it said they all came out to meet King Saul, and they sang and they danced And watch this, with joy. And this was their song. So what are they singing? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Which I think is where they invented Nana Nana Boo Boo, to be honest with you. (laughs) Stick your head in doo-doo. But I can't prove it, all right, everybody? But he said, David killed his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? Watch this. They credit David with ten thousands. And me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Jealousy and insecurity. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. A couple of things I want you to see from this story, all right? A couple of things I want you to see from Saul's descent into jealousy. The first one is God used David to bring a victory to the nation of Israel. But the thing I want you to see that we sometimes forget about the story is that Saul played a part in David having that opportunity. Saul plays a part in that. Remember, David comes to Saul, and he says that God has sent me against this Philistine, and Saul tries to dissuade him, but then he tries to put his armor, but finally he just says, go in the strength of the Lord. Saul positions him to actually fight the giant. Because remember, if David loses, then Saul and all his army become slaves of the Philistines. And so he has to have Saul's permission to even step out. And so David goes in the strength of the Lord and he goes and defeats the giant and they have that whole conversation. But you find this this sudden, honestly, it's a principle of weak leadership. And this one's just free for you guys today, all right? But in studying this story, you find this, this idea of weak leadership of Saul. Because he could have said, I don't care what these people think. They weren't even on the battlefield. I know what happened. I know how it went. I know that we had this great victory. And David is now has this elevation into prominence. And that he won this for victory for Israel. And so it's a great thing for us. And I understand that. But no, Saul goes into, well, I don't know if what David did. Now he'll suddenly take my job. 
And you see this insecurity come over him because weak leadership always looks at the people coming after them and tries to suppress the gifting that's in them. When God has called leaders to train up other leaders, Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest of all, serve others, elevate others, begin to be a servant in the kingdom of God. But instead, Saul is trying to suppress this. And so often we see this in our own lives as well. You see this in the corporate world all the time in businesses where you'll have a manager who has a rising star. And so instead of using them to the best of their abilities, they try to suppress it because they're afraid of their own role being diminished. Instead of realizing that if you can find and train and empower leaders, you'll be the most invaluable person in the company. You'll be the most valuable person if you can find and cultivate that in the kingdom of God. Jesus said it first, if you begin to disciple others. Jesus even looked at his disciples and said, greater things than I do, you're going to do. If you start to elevate others, you start to look around and say, how can I help them in their gifting? Saul should have said, hey, I've got this great general now. I'm going to win every single battle from here on out. It's going to be awesome for the nation of Israel. I'm going to be the greatest king who ever lived. Instead of realizing that it's actually inside of himself, his own disobedience that leads to his downfall. It has nothing to do with David. It's Saul's own disobedience, his own betrayal of God that leads to his downfall. But his eyes are always out on David, his jealousy and insecurity, because we don't see the unique gifts God has given us. And so we always have our eyes on other people and we think, well, oh gosh, they're going to take my job. Or, oh gosh, their gifting is better than mine. I can't sling a stone and kill a giant eight feet tall across the battlefield. And so I think he's going to become the king. And it leads to jealousy and comparison and insecurity instead of remembering that God has a lane for us to run in. That God has a purpose for us to accomplish. And so we are constantly raising up others and elevating others and looking to the best in other people. Not giving place to this comparison and this insecurity and this jealousy, which is the death of godly wisdom. We begin to think, well, oh gosh, I'm not like them. And oh gosh, I'm not, I'm not like that person or God didn't gift me like that. We begin to look at others around us. So when we compare, we either win or we lose. And either way, it destroys the potential of God in our life. Either way, God is opposing us in our pride or we are taking ourselves out of the battle in our jealousy. Either way, it's destroying the potential that he has for us. When we compare, it's the death of godly wisdom. And Paul says, either way, I'm not really focused on what they're doing. When they commend and compare and they do all these things in their own minds, they are not wise and I'm not getting trapped in it. Paul began to write, I'm not, I'm not getting trapped up in all these fake apostles and all the things that they're claiming. All I'm concerned is my race that I'm running so that I can win, that I have a race before God. And when we compare, it's the death of godly wisdom and it creates these inappropriate feelings in us. And so as we close the sermon today, I want to talk about how do we fix it? How do we get rid of comparison? How do I give up comparing? Turning your Bibles to John chapter 21, I want to finish with this amazing story. And we'll just spend a few minutes here with a couple of points. Again, talking about things you might already know but that we need to put into practice in our lives. It's an interesting story because at this point, Jesus has already given his life on the cross. And he's died and now come to life three days later. He's risen from the tomb. But before he goes back to heaven, he has this interesting time where he's like appearing to the disciples. And so he's popping in and out. He's walking through walls. He's freaking everybody out, right? It's this cool little segment of time that you can read in the Gospel of John. And then the disciples, after one of his appearances, the disciples, Peter says, I'm going fishing which in times of crisis, we often revert to who we were. 
And so Peter does that. Jesus is trying to explain to them what the church is going to look like and what's going to happen now that he's going back to heaven and how the Holy Spirit will come. He's trying to explain these things. But during one of the lull times, Peter's like, I'm going fishing. And they all go with him. And the Bible says they cast the net and they fish all night and they never catch anything, which kind of, I just don't know how these guys survived until they met Jesus, all right? Because there's so many stories of them fishing all night and catching nothing, which some of you have told me stories about that from your own fishing experiences as well. But they fish all night and Jesus appears to them and he says, cast the net on the other side and they do and there's a great catch and they bring it to shore and they realize that it's Jesus. And so now they're having breakfast with him on the shore. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 15. And Jesus has this story. And then after breakfast, Jesus has this score to settle with Simon Peter. And he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because Simon has some things to work out in his life. All right. You remember that he kind of fell apart there at the end when Jesus was on trial. Simon Peter, he kind of like, right. Remember, he denies Jesus three times in Caiaphas' courtyard. He denies him three times vehemently. He, he really just, he, I, basically he does everything that he said he would never do. And so Simon Peter is a broken man. All the things that he thought about himself, all the great and grandeur ideas of the kingdom and the gospel and the church being built, those are all gone from Peter's mind. He's broken. And so Jesus realizes, and God knows that he needs to use Peter. And so he begins to restore him. But he does it in an interesting way. He takes Simon on a walk and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because in two references, you can watch in Matthew and in Mark, Peter spoke to Jesus before the crucifixion. And he said, oh, Lord, even if all of these desert you, oh, Lord, even if all of these people right back at the other disciples, even if all of these people run out on you, I will never desert you. I would never deny you, even if all of these. And so Jesus kind of slaps him across the face with this question. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? This comparison thing. Because Peter believed it before the crucifixion. And so it led to pride in his heart, even if all of they. And then afterwards now inferior. And so Jesus is dealing with this comparison thing. Do you love me more than these? And Jesus asks him the question, and the word he uses there is the word you may have heard before. It's the word agape. It's this unconditional, unsurrendering, right? this, this complete and perfect sacrificial love. And Peter responds this way, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter uses a different word for love in this first question, and he uses the word phileo. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. It's this, this friendship type of love, this working, which is where they get the word phileo fish, because you've got to love that sandwich, all right, everybody? you just got to... <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's not the point. <laughs> Just waking you up a little bit today. All right. God help us. This word phileo is actually this, this friendship type of commitment, like a friendship kind of a love, which is Peter's whole problem to begin with. Because Peter's got this. Yes, I'll work for it. Yes, I'll uphold my side of the bargain. Yes, I'll do all the things that go into the yes, Jesus. You know that I'll do this. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. We're not going to get into all of this where Jesus pastors him in the three different ways where he talks about the lambs, the smallest in the kingdom, and then he moves on to the sheep and those. But Jesus begins to restore Simon Peter. He said, feed my lambs. And then verse 16, he asked him again, do you love me a second time? Simon, son of John, do you love me again? Do you agape? And yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. But watch, Jesus said it. Do you love me? And he's left out the comparison this time. He already slapped Peter with that one. But he's left it out this time. So forget about them, Peter. Do you love me? 
Forget about all the comparison. Forget about what you said and what you said you would do and how it broken you are now. Forget about all of that. But Simon Peter, do you love me? What kind of, do we have a relationship? And he uses agape again and Peter responds, yes, Lord, I know you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you. But he uses phileo again and Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. And then a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Jesus uses phileo. This time, Jesus even lowers the bar even further. And he says, Simon Peter, we got rid of the comparison. We talked about, do you and I even have a relationship? But now he's just asking him, do you even have affection for me? Do you even have affection for me, Peter? And could you really commit to me personally? And and says, Peter is hurt by this one. Watch this. Was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he uses agape. And then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And going to verse 19. Jesus told him, follow me. He recalls Peter. Same words he spoke to him on the shore side when he called him. He says, then follow me. And what does Peter do? Peter follows him and all these great things happen. And Peter never makes another mistake. And Peter starts all these great ministries and does all these great things. Now, the very next verse, what does Peter do? Peter messes it up again. Peter goes right back to the thing that got him in trouble before the crucifixion. It says, Peter, in this verse, in the next one, he says, as for you, follow me. And he said, Lord, he said, and go back to that. Sorry, the verse right before Jesus said, follow me. Peter turned around and he saw behind them the disciple that Jesus loved, which is John, by the way. This is his book, but John's a little weird. He talks about himself in the third person all the time. But Peter looks back and he sees John standing there, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper. And asked, Lord, who will betray you? And Peter asked Jesus, but what about him, Lord? And how often do we do that in our lives? How often do we get this word from God or we get a thing that God says, I want you to step out in faith in this area. Or Lord, I want you to be, I want to recall you in this ministry. I want you to begin to do things for the kingdom over here. I want you to accomplish these things. And I've given you giftings and abilities to do it. And how often do we say, but Lord, what about them? What about them, oh Lord? Don't they have good giftings? And what about them, Lord? Why do they get that opportunity? And what about them, Lord? What are you doing over there? And watch Jesus' response to him. Because we look around and we say, Lord, what about them? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Talking about if I I want him to stay alive for the next billion years, what is that to you? What is that to you, Peter? As for you, follow me. What is it to you, Peter? In other other words, what difference does it make what I'm doing in someone else's life, Peter? What I'm doing in yours is you follow me. What difference does it make if those people are doing this or those people are running around there? What difference does it make you follow me? There's two simple points I want you to jot down as we close. The first one is very simply that what God is doing in someone else's life has nothing to do with what he's doing in yours. And what is wrong with me that I can't celebrate a victory in someone else's life? Because somehow I think God's not big enough to do the same in mine. What's wrong with me that I can't celebrate with someone else because I think that God is so limited that he can only bless them and not me. That God is so limited that he can only gift them and not me. That I can't even celebrate something because I'm so insecure in my own giftings and my own callings. What's wrong with me? What God is doing in someone else's life has nothing to do with what he's doing in yours. What is that to you? 
But Jesus says, you follow me. And God is saying, hey, would you follow me? Would you trust me? Would you step out in faith? Would you start that ministry? Would you speak to that person? Would you love that people group? Would you begin to share your testimony? Would you do those things? And so often we're like, well, I don't understand, God. What about them? Why don't, I have to, why don't they have to go through the pain that I've had to walk through? Why does it look like they get to get away with that thing? Why does it look like their gifting is better? And I can feel Jesus saying again today, what is that to you? What is it to you what their gifting is? What is it to you what their calling is? But we get so trapped in comparison that we can't even live out the potential that God's put on the inside of us. We get so trapped comparing against other people. When we stand before God and give an account for what we've done, as Scripture says we will do, He won't judge you based on what anyone else did, but based on what you did with the potential that He gave you. On what you did with the life that He called you to live, what you did with the giftings and the abilities and the talents that He put into your life, what you did with those is what you will stand or fall on that day with. That God will look at what you've done with the potential He placed inside of us. Ephesians 2.10 says that you're his handiwork. Another translation, you're his masterpiece. You're his craftsmanship. This idea that you were created specially on purpose and for a purpose. You were created as his handiwork to do good works in Christ Jesus with God prepared in advance for us to do. That God has a mission for your life. He has a plan for you. That you were made on purpose and for a purpose. That God loves you and he gifted you to accomplish that thing. David spoke about it that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But so often we get our eyes off of that. That God has a plan for us and we get it on everybody around us. And we think, Lord, what about them? Too many times instead of embracing what God has for us. The thing he prepared for us in advance to do. We spend our time. We waste our time comparing to others. Comparing against others. And he's not called us to do someone else's job. It's not what God has called us to do. He's not called us to run in someone else's lane. It's not called us to pick up someone else's burden. He's called us to run the race. He's called us to live. What God is doing has nothing to do with what he's doing in someone else's life. And he says, what is that to you? Because John has a different call in his life, Peter. You don't even know the things John has to walk through. But what is that to you? You follow me. If I have him stay alive until I return, if I have that person get a promotion and maybe you feel like your job isn't as great or I, I have them walk in this gifting or this talent and you feel like, well, your gifting and your talent isn't as great or I have them get that particular position and you feel like where you've been placed is not as great or lay, lead a bigger small group than yours and you feel like your small group is not as great. What is that to you? Jesus is saying, you follow me. Every single one of you has been called to follow God and someone else's calling should never be allowed to choke that out. That you would sit there and compare against someone else. Jesus is saying, you follow me. You want to know how you keep your eyes off of other people? You focus them on Jesus. Hebrews 12 talks about how we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We get our eyes off of comparing against everyone around us, comparing every season of life, every pitfall, every gifting, our eyes off of comparing every single thing that we think we should be better at against others. And we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. What God has called you and I to accomplish. Luke chapter 9, we close with this. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. He hasn't called you to carry anyone else's cross but your own. Daily and follow me. Final one today, jot it down if you're taking notes. We just need to follow Jesus. 
You want to give up comparing. You want to give up comparison in your life, whether it leads to pride or jealousy and insecurity, whatever it leads to that's toxic. You want to give it up. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You follow him. That he's called every single one of us to accomplish something for the kingdom. And so often we get caught in the toxic trap of comparison. That we can't even run the race that he set out for us to accomplish. You want to get your eyes off of comparing. You want to get your eyes off of everything around you that would drag you back down. You want to get your eyes off that and run your race. You follow Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer today? Lord, we ask you in this new year, God, we ask you that you would help us to give up comparing. That we're not going to rate or evaluate ourselves based on what anyone else is doing, but based on what you have put inside of us. God, that we give up comparing our giftings and our talents. We give up comparing, God, our position in life, our circumstances. We give up comparing our relationships. We give up comparing all of those things, God, in light of the plan and the purpose you've placed in every single one of us. We thank you, God, for that purpose. We thank you for the plan. We thank you, Lord, that you'll make clear the next steps. We thank you as we follow you. That we're not going to fix our eyes on any other person. We're not going to fix our eyes on other circumstances. We're going to fix our eyes on you. And you who created and began a good work in us will complete it, Lord. In Christ Jesus. And I want to pray. For all of us here, those watching online, I want to pray that God would begin to root out this idea and this bitterness and this thing of comparison. And before I pray that prayer, I want to pray one simple prayer. And that's for those of you who are here today. Or you're listening or watching online and you're far from God. And maybe you're listening today and you realize that you have fallen into these traps of comparison. But you've never known that God has a purpose for you. You've never realized that God has a plan for your life. That God created you on purpose and for a purpose. And that he wants you for the kingdom. So you came today, you're watching online and you felt like it was just by accident or it was just a coincidence. But I want you to know that you're here right now and you're listening right now to know that God loves you. And I don't care how far you feel away from God, he is drawing you. The Bible says draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. That God is watching for you, that he wants you. I don't care what anyone else has told you in your past, what anyone else has lashed out at you with their words, but I want you to know that God loves you and he has a purpose for you. And I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to join religion. I just want to connect you in a relationship with Jesus. You say, well, who is Jesus to me? Jesus is the son of God, the spotless lamb who lived a perfect life on the earth who died on the cross for your sins and for mine. That someone had to pay the penalty for our sins and he paid it for us. Then three days later, he rose from the dead so that anyone, including you, anyone can call on the name of Jesus and be saved. That right now you can call on the name of Jesus and be saved. It's not religion. It's not a church group. It's not any of those things. It's calling on the name of Jesus and being saved. So I want to give you those words today. Here's my only ask, and that is that you would say them and mean them in your heart. It would be my honor to lead you in that prayer of surrender. 
So I'm going to give you the words. You have to say them and mean them. And come on, church, we're going to pray with them. No one prays alone. Let's say these words today. Say, dear Jesus, I surrender. Forgive me of all my sins. Forgive me of all my mistakes. I believe that you died on the cross. And I believe that you rose again. And I surrender my life to you. Say these words. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus name. Now, Father, I pray God as a church. That in this year, we would be able to root out this toxic, God, this toxic trait of comparison. God, that you would begin to do a change in our life. God, that you would begin, Lord, to root out this pride or this jealousy and insecurity. That we would be able to again run the race that you've placed before us. That we would be able to again, God, go after everything that you have done in our lives. That we would be able to see our purpose again. That we'd accomplish the things that you have for us. We realize that it's not about anyone else. It's not about anyone else's giftings. It's not about anybody else's, Lord, anybody else's calling. Anybody else's circumstance. But that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. Knowing that he's called us to make a difference. He's called us, Lord, to build the kingdom. He's called us to go out in the world and spread the gospel. To tell our story. We thank you for all you're going to do, Lord, as we renew our purpose in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said, amen and amen. Come on, can you put your hands together for what God has done today? Amen, church. Two things before you go. Just two, give me two minutes right before you go. Two things. First one, if you prayed that prayer, if you made that decision today, we would love to meet with you to help you on your journey in Christ. I'm going to be standing at the front of the stage right after this service. If you'd like to talk over what your next steps are in this journey. So excited for that decision you made. Or if you feel more comfortable or you're watching online, you can text the word SAVE to 66599. We shot a video, just want to get you that information, what your next steps are in your walk with Christ. If you feel more comfortable with that, whichever one you decide, we're excited for what God is going to do in your life that you have made the best decision you can possibly make to follow Jesus. The rest of you, you're dismissed today. Be blessed as you go. We'll see you next Sunday.